We are back in the series, Kiss the Sun, and we're looking at Psalms 1 through 25. Today we're looking at Psalm 15. And I just wanted to mention as we begin this, when we approach a book or collection of books like the Psalms, so Psalms is not just a book, it's a collection of books that was put together sometime after the exile um, to Babylon. It's a collection of five books uh, put together that we call the Psalms. Uh, we, we need to recognize its context in the greater story of redemption. Uh, so often we might approach the Bible, maybe you grew up in a similar way. I grew up kind of hearing stories of these isolated tales of great deeds of valor and heroism and all these wonderful things accomplished by courageous men and women. And so we, we kind of approach the Bible in that manner. You know, these are wonderful tales. But we don't think of it as one story from beginning to end. But that's what the Bible is. The Bible is the story of redemption. It is one story from beginning to end. And certainly there are tales of uh, men and women of great courage who have done tremendous things. But this book was not given to us to inspire us to simply be better people. The Bible is not a collection of do's and don'ts. You know, if we do these things, we'll, we'll live better lives. If we don't do these things, we'll definitely live better lives. Now, the Bible uh, is a story, a single story of redemption told through the lives of many people. And it is a whole work. It was written by many different authors, but all under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And from creation to fall, to the law being given, to the prophets, to the coming of Christ and his work on the cross, and ultimately to the new creation, when all that is wrong is undone, it is the story of Jesus. The Bible is all about Jesus. He's the central figure throughout the Bible. All of it is telling of him. And so therefore, when we read the Psalms, let us not approach them as poems that describe the Christian and how one must behave to be righteous. Let us see them for what they are. And ultimately, they are not about you. They are about Jesus. This series is entitled, Kiss the Sun. Not because we liked that phrase from Psalm 2, but because it points us to what it's all about. The Son, Jesus. And so as we read Psalm 15, which is a very short psalm, uh, let us see and savor the only one it could truly be about. And I hope to draw out this morning to us how this passage describes the righteous one. The one who is worthy to stand on God's holy hill. And there is only one who is truly worthy. And so this morning, let's read Psalm 15. And you'll see that I have swapped to a physical Bible. Um, partially it's because I finally found one that I can read. <laughs> I may only be about to be 38, but uh, I needed a little bit larger text in order to read it. For whatever reason, we were talking about this this morning, me and Andrew, the ESV translations often have very small print. So finally I found one that's a little bit more readable for me and my weak eyes. So let's read Psalm 15. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue, And does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. 
in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning, Lord, just that you are good to us and and we've received such tremendous mercies from you because of your son. I do ask this morning as we read this text and as we try to understand it a little bit more you would reveal christ to us in a deeper way let us see him in this passage let us savor him in all that he does for us through us lord i I ask that we would just grow deeper in love with christ this morning and it's in his name we pray amen so we're going to talk about three things this morning who shall dwell he shall dwell And we shall dwell. So we're going to start with who shall dwell. David begins this psalm with a two-part question. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? The question and the theme of dwelling serve as the backdrop for the five verses that make up Psalm 15. With the words sojourn, tent, and dwelling, there's an idea of temporariness that's hinted at. David is considering the ways of man... And is asking, who is able to even stand as a guest in the presence of God? The tent refers to the tabernacle that was carried with Israel in their wanderings in the wilderness for 40 years. The holy hill refers to the temple mount, which at that time was known as Mount Zion. Today, if you actually look at Israel, Jerusalem, there still is a Mount Zion but it actually refers to a different mount than where the temple would have resided. Why that is the case, I do not know. But uh, at some point in time, they started calling a different mount, Mount Zion. But both these terms uh, speak of the sanctuary where God is especially present with his people. To sojourn or to dwell there is to be a divinely welcomed guest in God's house. So again... Who is able to sojourn and set up camp in his presence? Who is able to dwell on his holy hill? David answers his question with 11 declarations of the character of the one who is able to dwell. So let's read these declarations, David's answers again. He writes in verse 2, He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor nor takes up a reproach, against his friend in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. So the ESV Gospel Transformation Study Bible states in the notes on this psalm that this is the portrait of an upright man. He keeps all the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness, He judges rightly between the vile and those who fear the Lord. He avoids usury and deals faithfully with his neighbor. David is describing the one who is able to dwell in God's presence as blameless. He does what is right. Their life gives no room for criticism. Their life is marked by honesty in the way they live, speak, and treat others. This person keeps their word even when it costs them something. Even when it is to their hurt or their harm. Under the law, Jews were unable to charge interest to fellow countrymen who were poor. Uh, This would be usury. 
So they were not allowed to charge excessive interest against those who were fellow countrymen who were struggling financially. So this person David is describing would not lend with the intent of harm by means of profiting from the poor. They would be honest in their business dealings, refusing to take bribes. And finally, a righteous person, according to David, would not be moved. They would not be shaken. And if this is the ultimate message of this psalm, if this is the ultimate message of this sermon this morning, you would walk away with a list of things that you must do in order to enter God's presence. And maybe some would be able to do a few of them. And maybe some of you would uh, be able to look at this list and say, you know, 95% of it I've, I've been able to accomplish. But maybe not all. However, in order to enter God's presence, according to what this psalm is saying, and ultimately according to what the law says, you have to be perfect in all of it. There is no almost. And that's really what the law of God gets at. You must be perfect. If you fail in any of these things, what you reap, the reward that you receive, is that of judgment. The prophet Isaiah gives a very similar warning in Isaiah 33:14 through 16. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, who despises the gain of oppressions, who shakes his hands lest they hold a bribe, a bribe, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking on evil, he will dwell on the heights. His place of defense will be the fortress of rocks. His bread will be given him. His water will be sure. So why are the sinners in verse 14 afraid? Because the judgment of God is going to fall on them. Because they're not righteous. They have not lived out his law or God's commands. They have failed to do this faithfully. So the primary purpose of the law is to show us our sin. It's to drive us to a savior outside of ourselves. We see in it God's perfect holiness. The law crushes us under the weight of our unrighteousness and our inability to obey it. It crushes us because simply having the intent, the intent to obey is not enough. We must obey God's law and we must obey it all constantly for judgment. Deuteronomy 27 verse 1, Moses and the elders of Israel stand before the people and uh, they, they recite the curses um, of not following the law. And in verse 1, it says this, Now Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people, saying, Keep the whole commandment that I command you today. And then when we go to the New Testament, James writes in James 2.10, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. And so, if we approach this psalm or the law as a measuring stick of righteousness as though we could measure up and therefore enter God's presence because, yeah, I've accomplished these things. I've, I've ticked these boxes. We are claiming that we have been able to live righteously before God. And who can claim to live such a life perfectly? It goes even further. 
Because Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, shows the reader that even if you have lived a good life, your righteousness isn't good enough. Paul writes in Philippians 3, 4 through 11, uh, speaking of himself, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So what Paul is stating in detail is that even our righteousness, even our best Attempts to live for God are woefully inadequate. He calls them rubbish. Our devotion and commitment may be perfect. And according to the law, Paul seemed pretty spot on. But if it is our goodness, if it is my goodness that I'm pointing to, At its very best, it's rubbish. It's waste. And if you want to know really what that word is getting at, we can we can talk afterwards because it's 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 graphic what that word means. Many of you have pets, and when you're cleaning up after them, that's what Paul is calling his best. His righteousness, his goodness. He's calling what you have to clean up after an animal. Mike Tucker shared with us last week from Psalm 14 that ultimately no one is truly good. No one is righteous. And that's why when we look at our righteous acts, why when we look at our good deeds, we have to consider them as waste. Because ultimately the reality is no one is good enough. Psalm 14, 1 through 3, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. We all stand on even ground here. We're all in the same boat. We have no righteousness in and of ourselves that we can point to as our hope for salvation. And when you consider all those things, it is kind of crushing, isn't it? When you approach the law of God and you see what is required, all the perfection that's required, it's crushing. And you might attempt to do it for some time, but ultimately you feel the weight of it when you fail to keep it in perfection. For years, I struggled. um, In my teenage years, I I struggled with these things. I, I really was in bondage to legalism and and the law. 
I, I felt that if I had just spent more time with God and if I just read the, the scriptures more often, I would find victory over the things that I was struggling with as a teenager. And I found myself spinning in circles as I struggled to overcome the things that I was dealing with that I, that I knew no Christian should be part of. I, I would sit there at night and I would say, okay, I'm going to read one chapter of my Bible and tomorrow will go better for me. And I would read one chapter of my Bible and the next day wouldn't go better for me. Same temptation would raise its ugly head and I would fall. So then I would think, oh, well, if I only read two chapters and pray for 30 minutes instead of 15. Well, that night I got home late from work and I was exhausted and I didn't read. Well, so of course the problems I experienced the next day were because of that, right? Well, no. And I was crushed constantly by what I read. Be perfect. Be better. Because I was reading the word of God like it was all about me and all my attempts to become a better person. And ultimately, it crushed me. But that's one of the purposes of the law. It's to crush us. But not only to crush us. It's to drive us to look outside of ourselves to the one who is righteous. To look to the one who kept the law perfectly. So to David's question, who shall dwell? The answer is there is only one who could dwell. And his name is Jesus. So we're going to look at that as the second point this morning. He shall dwell. When confronted with the high standards of this psalm, we are driven back to David's original question. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? We find ourselves asking, who then is able to dwell? Knowing that we cannot live perfectly, According to the standards presented or according to God's perfect law, we are driven to look for someone unlike us. He's like us in the sense that he took on flesh and came to this earth, but he's unlike us in the sense that he kept the law perfectly. And he's the son of God. The one who can dwell on God's holy hill is not like the ones David wrote about in Psalm 14. He's not like us. There is one who is good and we are not that one. The idea of dwelling on God's holy hill isn't a new thought in the Psalms. It calls us back to one of the most clear portraits of Christ in the Psalms that we've seen yet, and that's Psalm 2. In Psalm 2, Yahweh is not asking who will dwell on his holy hill. He's declaring whom he himself has set on his holy hill. In Psalm 2.6, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Who is this king that is able to dwell on God's holy hill? It's Jesus. Now, what does this all mean for us? Well, first, Jesus would come and dwell among us. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Joseph Ryan writes, the word dwelt among us, which literally means tabernacled among us, which means he pitched a tent among us. He camped among us. The Old Testament tabernacle is where God moved and lived with his people. And this tabernacle really has no meaning apart from Christ. Its whole purpose in the wilderness was to point people forward to the true tabernacle who was to come, the Son of God. So Jesus came and he sojourned among us. He visited us in human form for a short time. He journeyed amongst his people. 
Second, in tabernacling among us, Jesus does what the temple was meant to do. The temple was located on what I mentioned earlier is known as Mount Zion. The temple was a place where people would come and be uh, drawn in to worship God. Yet there were limitations because of man's sin and God's holiness. There was only certain places that one could enter. And ultimately, the the holy place, the holiest of holies, only the the high priest could enter, enter once a year. Jesus comes as the one whom the temple pointed to. He comes not to a humanly built building to meet with God, but by entering a body made by God to meet with us. He comes to restore man to God. How would he accomplish these things? Well, we just went through the Advent season. We, we spoke for a number of weeks on how Jesus took on flesh, how he came uh, as a human, and we call that the incarnation. Well, he went on to live the life we couldn't live, the life of perfect obedience to God and the law. He was crucified and buried, and he rose again, and he ascended into heaven. And he predicted all of this, in John, Jesus spoke of this when he said, in John two nineteen through 22, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. So through these things, what the good news is all about He accomplished what was necessary to redeem and restore man to God. And that's what the temple had been pointing to all along. Jesus could only do these things if he was perfect, if he was sinless, if he was spotless. 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19, knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. Jesus was blameless. He fulfills every one of the declarations that David gives here. He is the one who is able to dwell. And because he shall dwell, we also shall dwell. Which is the third point this morning. We shall dwell. How can it be then we are able to dwell? We who have believed in Christ are now hidden in Christ. We're united with him in his death and resurrection, pictured in water baptism. We have been clothed with his righteousness. His blamelessness is now our blamelessness. His righteousness is our righteousness. And this enables us to come into his presence. And not just as a guest, but as a son or a daughter. I quote um, this scripture that I'm about to read quite often. But I do that because I think there's just a ton of good news in it for us. And because I love it. And so I'm just going to keep doing that. But 1 Corinthians 1.30. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. We are in Christ Jesus. He's become our wisdom. He's become our righteousness. He's become our sanctification and our redemption. We are in him. And all of these wonderful things have been gifted to us. He's given them freely to us. 
2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The blameless, the blameless one took on your sin so that you could become the righteousness of God. Again, this is not a righteousness of your own, but his righteousness. This was a divine exchange. He took your old life, your sinfulness, and he gives you his perfect righteousness. And he does it freely. Paul tells the church at Colossae that Jesus has reconciled us to present us as blameless. Colossians 1.22, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This is how God sees us now, because of Christ. He sees us as blameless. Your life hidden in his. So when God looks at you, he sees his perfect son or daughter, if you've believed in Christ, because of what Christ has done. There's a scene in the movie, Lord of the Rings. <laughs> no, go figure. But I'm not just going to tell you about it. I'm going to play it for you this morning. Well, Eric's going to play it for you. So what happens in this scene from the two towers? Sam and Frodo are saved by the cloaks that they're wearing. And you can see them kind of in the center of the frame there. Looks like a giant rock. That's their elven cloaks that they were given in the kingdom of Lothlorien. We saw Sam slide down the rock-strewn slope before the gates of Mordor. He gets half buried in the, the falling debris. Frodo rushes down and throws his cloak over him. The two soldiers approach, but they can't see where the hobbits are because of the cloaks that hid them, perfectly concealing Frodo and Sam. They were hidden by those, those gray cloaks that they were given. Believer, you have been clothed with the robes of righteousness. The cloaks that you wear that cover you are Christ. God no longer sees you as the fool of Psalm 14. He sees you as he sees Christ, the one whom he set on his holy hill. And so therefore, you too are able to dwell. You're hidden in Christ. Your imperfections are no longer visible. What's visible is Christ. David points us to Jesus in this psalm. He shows us what the Savior would look like. In doing so, he also shows us the consequence or the fruit of this redemption and what that would look like in our lives. 
Because we're in Christ, even when we fail, his deeds, his perfect deeds, have been accounted to us. Even in our failures, that's what God sees. His perfect record is our perfect record. Even more, we who are believers are being conformed to the image of Christ. The fruit of the Spirit is growing in us. These 11 declarations describe what we are in Christ by faith and what he is making us to be. You are blameless in Christ and he's producing himself in you. So the way that you treat others is being shaped and transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit Excuse me, working in you. God is working in you to love him and to love one another. And so I encourage you today to walk in this by God's grace. You have been freed and empowered to love one another, to treat each other fairly, to deal fairly in your business dealings, to bear the burdens of others. By God's grace, as David says, you shall never be moved. You have been planted firmly on the unshakable rock that is Christ Jesus. So by faith, this is who you are, by God's grace, and he's also making you to be this. And so these things will be developed in your life, and they will be evident. And so I encourage you to grow in these things as you depend on the grace of God. Jesus came and tabernacled among us. The Holy Spirit now lives inside of us. He's dwelling in us, and we're being built up in God. I mentioned, I think, in the very first psalm that we looked at, um, that God speaks a lot through his word in terms of buildings. That's a common metaphor that's used in scripture. But we're not just being built up on our own, like separate, isolated little buildings here and there. We're actually being built up together. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the, the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We're being built up together. And that's what this will look like. What Psalm 15 presented on our own could never be us. It could only point to Christ. But there is a lasting work that he is doing in building us up to be like that. This morning, we come to the table, the Lord's table. As I said at the beginning of this message, there's a sense of temporariness about the words that David used. Sojourned, tabernacle, or tent, uh, and the word dwell. Jesus tabernacled among us, but his time on earth and physical human flesh was brief. And now we live in the temporariness of life here on earth. Scripture says that our life is but a vapor. I've always loved that idea. I think it might be a King James word there, but the idea of life as a vapor. Christ's work, though, is not a temporary work. He redeemed the people to himself for all of eternity. And by his work, we have been granted that eternal life. And we will ultimately... Dwell in a forever state with God in his presence. Again, not just as guests, but as sons and daughters. And so until that day, one of the ways we remember the work that Jesus did is by partaking in the Lord's table. We we always read this passage um, when we do it here at Grace Life. But the, the 
Uh, Apostle Paul wrote these words in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so there is a temporariness about this. We do this in remembrance of what he's done until he returns. And then forever we will be with him. And so we remember until faith will be made sight. Just a few instructions as as you come to take. Um, If you could, just one per family, come and grab the elements that you need. Uh, Bring them back to your seats, so grab enough for you uh, and anyone who is with you. Um, There's a table in the front, and there's a table in the back as well. So whichever is closest to you, feel free to grab from that. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we, we bless you that by a single offering, Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. It is finished transgression, put an end to sin, atoned for iniquity, and has brought in everlasting righteousness. That he has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That you have done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending your own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, who by a sacrifice for sin condemned sin in the flesh. Father, I ask that you would strengthen us to walk in the works you've prepared for us, that we would live in the power of your grace and the power of your Holy Spirit. Help us to love and encourage one another. And as we take of the bread and the cup, help us to believe as we await our Savior's return. Strengthen our faith. We praise you, and in the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.